Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. We recently podcasted on the 200th anniversary commemoration of the United States taking possession of Florida territory from Spain. That signing and flag ceremony occurred in St. Augustine for East Florida. A week later, Pensacola hosted a similar event for West Florida. At sunrise, Dan Skyhorse Helms, chief of the Santa Rosa Creek tribe, offered a blessing in Ferdinand Plaza before the ceremony recreating the exchange of Spanish and American flags 200 years since the first time. The University of West Florida's symphonic band played the Star-Spangled Banner and provided a medley of Spanish, British, French, and American music. Hispanic musicians drifted through the village and, just as they did 200 years ago, performers of African descent danced in the plazas. Spanish and English military reenactors mingled with the public for the West Florida Days Living History weekend event. Programming was structured to reflect the community's rich and diverse heritage and the collective influences that made the Pensacola community what it is today. Under the United States possession, East and West became simply Florida. Why did Spain part with Florida by 1819 treaty? What part did border conflicts with the new American Republic play in Spain's decision? Even so, why was Spain willing to part with any possession, even one as negligible to its empire as Florida was? An understanding of Spain's motivation requires a look at Spanish Florida in the period leading up to 1821, when the transfer was executed. Why were the two sides joined as one territory under U.S. possession? What became of the free whites with multicultural backgrounds already living in Florida? What challenges did Free blacks have in U.S. Florida. And as for the Seminole, whether two Floridas are one, why did territoriality bring unnecessary oversight from the Great Father in Washington, an oversight that subsequently led to unnecessary conflict, as our listeners well know? With us to sort this out is Dr. Brian Rucker, a member of the 200th Anniversary Committee. He sketches Florida life at the transfer and addresses these questions. Dr. Rucker is a professor of history at Pensacola State College. He also teaches courses in Florida history and the history of the Florida Panhandle at the University of West Florida. We are in store for a treat with Dr. Rucker. Students in his various classes have voted him the best teacher year after year, and he brings his engaging approach to us today in this podcast. He is a past president of the Gulf South Historical Association and has authored and edited over 40 books and articles related to West Florida history, including the Gulf borderlands struggles of the early 1800s. His most recent publication is a most engaging change of pace, the story of Walt Disney World Resort Hotels, 1971 to 2021. And yes, be patient, we will discuss that before our episode is over. Dr. Brian Rucker, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thanks. It's an honor to be here and uh, be with you today. Brian, what was this ceremony in Pensacola on July 17th all about? We commemorate the 200th anniversary of Florida being given to the United States. Okay, Brian, tell us about the ceremony. When did it start and what did it entail? Freak from the Santa Rosa tribe did the sunrise blessing service at 6.30. A beautiful atmosphere. There's a breeze blowing. It was cool. They did their special blessing ceremony asking for the creator to bless the events of the day. And then, if you're familiar with the significance, as they're doing this, two crows fly over and call. And they were excited because that was a blessing. The creator had heard them and sent the crows. 
It was a pretty special moment there at 630. The Creek members who participated on the program, not just at the Sunrise Service, but on the program, they got up there and spoke in the Muskogee language. And they said, if we were doing this 150 years ago, we would be arrested. And we were not even allowed to say the Muskogee language, and we definitely would not be allowed up here on this stage. He said this is the first time the Muskogee language has been spoken at a public event in Pensacola since 1821. And that was a pretty neat thing. Then around 10 o'clock, the band started playing. 200 years ago, and then 200 years later, same time for the ceremony? The whole thing took place around 10 o'clock that morning. Any ships firing a gun salute? American warship, the Hornet, not the aircraft carrier, but a gun salute off of the Hornet. The muskets fired down there in downtown Pensacola. We actually did the lowering of the Spanish flag, the raising of the American flag, and people in appropriate regalia from that time period doing the little ceremonial musket. And had a couple flyovers from some Navy planes. At 10.45, the dignitaries took the stage. Judy Benz was the master of ceremonies, and she introduced each of the people up there, and they were limited to like three minutes. At the end of that, we were able to walk down from the stage all the way to the end of the museum plaza there, and there was a special flagpole where the Spanish flag was flying that morning, and then they put the American flag up there. They stopped at midway, and then they put the American flag, and the Spanish flag was lowered. You have the reenactors which shoot off the muskets. After the conclusion of this, there was a flyover timed at the same time as the national anthem was ending. The playing of the national anthem was quite significant in 1821. Why? They played the national anthem, which I think is pretty cool because this is 1821. It had only been created seven years before. It's already, it was becoming well-known. We had some people fly over from Pensacola NAS because Pensacola NAS is the basic descendant of that 1826 Pensacola Navy Yard that was created only five years after Pensacola was established. So a long tradition of the military in Pensacola. We're not called the mother-in-law of the United States Navy for nothing. <laughs> It was pretty cool how everything turned out perfectly. Were you able to do any living history interpretation based on the dignitaries who they believe were at the ceremony 200 years ago, including Andrew Jackson? We didn't have anybody portraying the dignitaries from that time. We thought it would be fun to find a, a descendant of Andrew Jackson or somebody like that or Jose Cayaiva, but we figured they'd probably get into a fight. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, Let's see, uh, Rick Scott showed up, Senator Rick Scott showed up, the Secretary of State for Florida, she showed up, our mayor and uh, different county commissioners, uh, representatives of the Creek Nation, not too long because it was going to be hot. We tried to get to the consul in Miami, but of all things, he was out of the country during the July 17th thing, so we tried. What did they do to prevent filibusters from the official dignitaries who were going to speak at the event. They kept all the people on the stage to keep their little things they had to say short and sweet. <laughs> and short and sweet is always nice. <laughs> who handled continuity for the living historians to ensure they were all in the proper period gear? Oh, we got a couple of people that from the West Florida Historic Trust, that that's their ballywick. That's all they do. And so I think they were in charge of that, making sure that everybody was appropriate and dressed and things of that nature. 
like Philip Mayhair. He was the UW Mr. That was his job. He was on the commission, and that was his task to be the coordinator for all the reenactors. How many reenactors or living historians are part of this, or part of regular historical events in Pensacola? And how is it publicized so the public knows? A lot, a lot. We've already got... Uh, down to the downtown historic trust here in downtown Pensacola, a lot of living history participants there. Plus, we know a lot of the reenactors. Two Ag TV, Dale Cox and Rachel Conrad. Rachel was there videotaping. Um, and so you've got already a good uh, – we know all these people. It's not like you know we had to really say, hey, what you doing? Can you come over here and do some stuff? we got a big cross-section of folks Every day, they're baking bread, doing blacksmithing, all that type of stuff already. If we just enlarged that, opened up, it was free for everyone. All the museums were open and free that day. Luckily, the weather held off. The pandemic was our biggest fear. How are things going to be? Because we're planning this back in the last year. Okay, we'll see. So there's plan B, too. We even had the keel boat from Arkansas, those folks. They were at the Chattahoochee thing a few years ago, the O-Ark. They had built a little keel boat. They live in Arkansas, but they brought that down because keel boats and rafts were coming on the Scambia River. So that was down there uh, at Pitt Slip there in downtown Pensacola. So people got a chance to see an authentic type of keel boat, the kind of things that would have been river traffic in 1821. So we had them doing displays and things like that. Luckily, everything went according to plan. Thank goodness. Nice turnouts, hundreds of people. And despite the sweltering heat, people always like to see the what it was like in 1821. And the first thing they say is, man, that looks hot. <laughs> For real. Who pulled this all together? Dr. Judy Benz, archaeologist supreme from Pensacola, also former president of the University of West Florida. Grover Robinson, the mayor of Pensacola, came to her about a year ago and said, we got 200 to come up. You want to do something? So Judy contacted Margot Stringfield, another archaeologist in a long work of the colonial period, and got a commission together. And she wanted a professional historian involved. And I teach both at PSC and at UWF. And so uh, she invited me to be the historical component of this. So they have the archaeology, they got genealogy, they got history, and then, of course, get all the city and county leaders together. So we've been meeting for over a year. It started when we actually have meetings, and then COVID hit, so we had to do everything through Zoom. So we've been meeting since January of last year, trying to put this thing together, because not only is it the commemoration of the 200th, but it's also the birth of Escambia County. Escambia County was created a couple of days later. And you, you know, there were only two counties in 1820, St. John's and Escambia, and the divine line was the Suwannee River. So it's not just Pensacola and Escambia County and the 200th of Florida. So the idea was to have a commemoration. Uh, we had done something very similar back in 1971 for the 150th. And so we just saw what they did. And said, well, let's do something different, have a different twist. And so that's how the commission began. I was honored to be allowed to be on it because West Florida is my specialty and I love the time period. And so I got a chance to talk about what I really know, what I really love. Brian, I understand you offered some suggestions on additional ways to commemorate the 200th anniversary. One thing I suggested, this is silly, but I thought it would be cool that to bring people in middle Florida together, somebody from Pensacola would take a flask of like a gallon of water from the bay. Somebody from St. Augustine would get to their a gallon of water from their bay. 
and we come to Swanee River State Park on the Swanee River and pour them in together at the same time, one from Escambian, one from St. John's County, showing the symbolism and the unity of Florida in 1821. I am all about going way down upon the Suwannee River. But, you know, it never happened. It would have been a cool thing. I understand initially they were considering having dual capital between Pensacola and St. Augustine. What became of that? And the first uh, territorial legislature meeting in 1822 was going to be in Pensacola. I think one of the delegates from Augustine died in a shipwreck. Getting there was a problem. And then the yellow fever epidemic hit. It was a disaster. And so they said, you know, this alternating capitals is not going to work. So that's when they, in 1824, they decided, met halfway, said, you know, the Appalachian old grounds, the old Indian grounds, said, this is fine. And so that's how Tallahassee gets established. It was just a little log cabin for its first Capitol building. How was the event received? Oh, we got a good write-up in the news journal here, and they've been helping us ever since February. Every Monday, they run a piece that we've been doing, a group of authors. We alternate every couple of weeks or so, and every week we do a piece related to Pensacola, what the different ethnic groups were doing, what was going on business-wise, what was going on transportation. That's been keeping the interest fueled. That's been so popular. They got me doing it until mid-August. Even though this is over, I'm still working. <laughs> 200 years ago and then 200 years later, same time for the ceremony? The whole thing took place around 10 o'clock that morning. They played the national anthem, which I think is pretty cool because this is 1821. It had only been created seven years before, and so already it was becoming well-known. Any ships firing a gun salute? American warship, the Hornet, not the aircraft carrier, but a gun salute off of the Hornet. The muskets fired down there in downtown Pensacola. We actually did the lowering of the Spanish flag, the raise of the American flag, and people in appropriate regalia from that time period doing the little ceremonial musket. And had a couple flyovers from some Navy planes. Why was this a big deal then, and why is it a big deal now? I, as I tell my students, it'll be like the year 2050-something before the United States will have had Florida longer than the Spanish had. We forget about the 1500s all the way up to 1821, with just a little intermission here or there. Spain had Florida. That's a very long time period. It's a big significance, the switchover and changeover. It was a new era in Florida. With that in mind, what did you do? We were trying to make a commemoration of all the different multi-ethnic groups that were here, not just the Spanish, but the early Americans, the French who were here. Well, you know, Pensacola's always been a cosmopolitan place. We have, of course, the various Native American tribes. We've got all of these different people. We've got African Americans, both free and slave. It was a very multicultural melting pot even back then. So one of the things we wanted to focus on was identify all the people who were here in 1821. Our local genealogical society, by using the 1820 census, was able to identify several thousand people, which is really pretty amazing. We got about 2,100 people we've been able to identify that were here in 1821. Everything you can imagine, Portuguese and, and from Holland and England and France and America and the Caribbean and different parts of Africa. Why focus on the multicultural aspect of the people who were living in Pensacola? What does that tell us? Well, 
one of the things we want to do is focus on the people that were here, not just so much why it was important, significant nationally and things like that, but who were the people whose day-to-day lives were being affected? Because a lot of the Spanish who were here opted just to leave the army and stay here. This was their home. And we have a significant Hispanic population in Pensacola with the original old Spanish names from that last Spanish period. That's interesting because they played a significant role for the next 200 years. And it's really cool to be able to identify that continuity, that these were people who were there then 200 years ago, and they're still here. So how did you go about doing that? Well, we let the genealogists, the West Florida Genealogical Society started this project about a year ago. And what we have is the 1820s Spanish census of Pensacola, and that was a godsend. Plus, not only did it list the people in Pensacola, it listed all the Anglo-American, the crackers, who were coming down from Alabama and Georgia and squatting on the land. Even before 1821, the Spanish knew they were like not supposed to be there, but wink, wink, nudge, nudge. 200 years ago, what were your options if you were living in Pensacola at the time of this transfer? They had the option of leaving. They had the option of staying. Many people had grants of farmland, pasture ground for cattle. They had houses and businesses in downtown Pensacola. There are several people that we know that were doing pretty well. They had eventually would have brickyards and, and cattle ranches and things like that. There was one woman, Mariana Bonifay, she was from the Caribbean. She came with her family, and by today's standards, she was a millionaire by the 1820s. So there were some people who did very well. Just like when the Dutch got ran out of New York, they didn't all just get a boat and head back to Holland. Me and them just said, we don't care what flag is flying. As long as our homes are not bothered, as long as our businesses continue, we will stay here. And they did. And that meant we had a very multicultural Gulf Coast. Along the Gulf Coast, you got the French, you got the Spanish, you got English, you got Muskogee. All those were because of the borderlands. It was sort of a given. You knew a little bit of everybody else's language. And the first newspapers had the proclamations in Spanish and English. Eventually that disappeared, just went to to straight English. Just became acculturated. Got influx of more and more people, and you pick it up. It's just like any other place that gets a change of flag ceremony. A lot of people going back and forth. We'd have to look at the final stats that they're working on for the Geological Society and see if they've got how many people stayed, how many people left, and that could give us some idea. Plus, a lot of people came in to get on the ground floor, entrepreneurs into St. Augustine, into St. Mark's, into Pensacola, trying to get on the bottom floor of this new investment. Keep in mind, the next year in 1822, we had a horrific yellow fever epidemic in Pensacola that killed over 10% of the population. That threw a lot of people off, and the population declined after that significantly, not only because of the people dying, but uh, so I don't know if this is a good place to visit or not. And really, that's what hindered Florida until the 20th century. So the Americans took Florida from Spain, who took it from Britain, who took it from Spain. What did the Spanish inherit from the British period that may have carried over to the American period? They learned a few things from the British. For instance, during the British period, for the first time, oranges got shipped out from St. Augustine back to Europe. And that's sort of the beginning of Florida's orange industry. And the Spanish said, oh, that's a good idea. And they saw that in the late 1700s, the big money maker in the southeast were deer skins because England's undergoing its industrial revolution, and they needed all these leather belts and pulleys for their textile mills. 
and they didn't want to use their good English leather, so what they used is cheap leather made from the white-tailed deer of the southeast. So you could say that England's Industrial Revolution was powered by the white-tailed deer of the southeast. It was the Native Americans that would hunt the deer and bring to the St. Augustine, Savannah, Charleston, Pensacola was a big shipment center, and then they would ship them over to Europe and other areas. So deer skins was one of the most lucrative things that they had in Florida in the late 1700s. What effect on the Spanish territory did Americans bring? These early American settlers were bringing down keelboats and rafts of potatoes and corn and pumpkins to feed the people of Pensacola so they can get food now instead of being shipped from Havana. They're bringing beef and vegetables and produce down to Pensacola, so the Spanish officials didn't really mind those interloper trespassers being up there along the Escambia River. Brian, this podcast is about seminal resistance to Indian removal. What was a likely seminal reaction to this acquisition of Florida by the United States in 1821? I think there was a lot of fear among the Seminoles because they'd already been fighting this semi-quasi-war for several years. It goes back to the Spanish period with the Panto Leslie Trading Company. In the early days, you got Alexander McGillivray, who was half Scottish and half Creek, tied in with the Wind Clan. He was a great silent partner for the trading company based in Pensacola, and he was looking after the deals of the Creeks. But he died in 1793, and that's where we really start to see things go downhill for Spain. Because without this one guy really looking out for the rights of the Native Americans, you would see the Creeks getting into debt. They cannot sell enough deer hides to get out of debt. It's like today, Discover, Visa, MasterCard, you got into debt, and they began to have to trade off some of their lands to the Panther Leslie Trading Company, and they resented that, and they resented Spain because the company is sort of an extension of Spain. But there was no one to take that gap. You got people like William Augustus Bowles, who was a thorn in the side of everyone. That guy was a crazy English ex-soldier and actor who tried to become the director general of the Muskogee Nation. He, the Spanish had reward for him, the, the Panto Leslie Company. Even the Creeks and Seminoles didn't like him because we did bring them some guns. They were all rotten and just worthless. And he would go to England, full-dress regalia, and they said, you speak such good English. He's English. He's just a con artist. He is just a con artist. Very handsome, debonair. I wish somebody would make a movie about him and get Johnny Depp to star it. That would be awesome. Some people would pay big bucks to get William Augustus Bowles. Several thousand dollar reward for William Augustus Bowles by the Spanish government or 1,500 kegs of rum. Eventually, they caught him and threw him in a prison cell in Havana, and he protested through a hunger strike. He said, I'll just starve myself to death, which is a long, drawn-out process. You can't make up this stuff. Your fiction is tame compared to the real life. <laughs> and then you got the cattle coming in, and the creeks, half of the creeks were going to settle down and do cattle and cowboying, if you want to call it that, and farming. But the other part of the Creeks, they became the Red Stakes, and they started the internal faction of the Creek War. It's a chain event. There's not one magic bullet that explains why Spain just threw up their hands and said, oh, it's not worth it. It's a whole chain of events. It's the layers of an onion. 
But history is like that. You try to look for simple explanations, and that rarely is the case. As a historian, Brian, what does the record tell us about why the Americans wanted Florida so much? I think, this is just my personal opinion, that Jackson and other people like that were just absolutely frustrated that Spain could not send in forces to deal with the problem themselves. And Spain just didn't have the resources. In essence, that border area just was a no-man's land. Jackson invaded Pensacola in 1814, and then you got Duncan Clinch coming down in 1816 with the Negro Fort, and then you got more uh, attacks up and down like Chattahoochee. So you got the first Seminole War begins, and once again, Jackson is forced to send in troops into Florida twice in just a few years' time. Basically the same thing about the, the inability for law and order to take place inside of Spanish Florida. He goes down there, rebuilds at Negro Fort, Fort Gadsden, takes out St. Mark's, fights and captures Seminoles there in Miccosukee at Tallahassee, all the way to the Swanee River. And while he's there, we're not at war with England. We're not at war with Spain. And Jackson captures two British agents who are supplying guns to the Seminoles, has them court-martialed in Spanish Florida, has them executed. I mean, they practically had a beer in Washington, D.C. to apologize for what Jackson's done this month. Then he hears that there's been marauding bands that ended spawning in school. So he takes his forces all the way from the Big Bend area, all the way over to Pensacola. There's a small little skirmish with the Spanish, and they don't have the capability, and they surrender. That really convinced Spain that, oh, it's not worth it. In 2018, I was in charge of the Gulf South History and Mandy's Conference in Pensacola, and I said, let's do something on Pensacola and Jackson. And one of the cool things I dug up is of the Spanish account of the battle, which has completely different casualty figures than Jackson's official report. Good stuff. Good stuff. How long did the Americans hold the area, and what else was going on in the Florida Territory around that time? The American forces held the area for like uh, nine months. If it had just been West Florida, it might have been completely different. But you got the Patriots down at Alachua. You've got Fernandina, which is a hotbed of insanity. you got Gregor McGregor, who came in the Republic of Venezuela, Colombia, Rio de la Plata. And then when nothing happened, he was not recognized. He sails out. And the next day, Louis Ari, a Galveston pirate, comes in and establishes the Republic of Mexico. And that's where the United States, oh, wait, 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 okay. You know, and we have to send in troops, police, Fernandina and Amelia Island, until Spain's able to. So both in East and West Florida, they're suffering double whammies. They're dealing with all the up Mexico and Peru, everything else is going wrong for them. So they're just saying, we need to cut our losses while we can. If Americans know anything about the acquisition of Florida from Spain, it's that the Americans paid $5 million for it. And a lot of people think that we paid Spain $5 million. That's not true. That's a myth. Actually, it was Spanish citizens that owed $5 million to American citizens for different things, and we just agreed to cover that debt. In the Adams and Nice Treaty, that's where the $5 million comes from. That's one of those things that somewhere crept into the history books around the 1930s. It's one of those things that you just can't kill as myth. <laughs> I don't know. Some people, I think, like a good story rather than the facts. <laughs> 
But the reason people say, well, if that happened in 1819 with the Adams and East Tree, why did it take to 1821? But that's because a revolution took place in Spain, so they had to throw out all the other legislation. Then they had to wait for it. Then it had to go back to our Congress again. So finally, that's why it took so long, two years. In 1821, it was finally officially done by both legitimate governments. Transferring Florida over to the Americans is not as strange an idea as one might think. The Americans at least had precedent in the Gulf region for conducting a change of authority with a European power. Look at New Orleans. Yeah. Keep in mind, what's going on in 1821 with the rest of Spain's empire? Mexico and Peru and Bolivia, they're all having revolutions. Their empire is crumbling. They don't really need to deal with what's going on in Florida. That's what we were after, though. They didn't have guns, naval materials, people to throw at the problem here in Florida. They had bigger problems. Plus, in the early 1800s, Spain got conquered by Napoleon Bonaparte. And Napoleon put his brother as king of, of Spain. Napoleon putting his brother Joseph on the throne of Spain didn't sit so well with the Spanish. Spanish started a rebellion against it. And when the British heard that, they sent the Duke of Wellington to go fight down in Spain with the Spanish against the French. And so that's why it got really complicated here, because Spain was neutral, like in the War of 1812, but were they really? Because the English said, hey, we're going to use Pensacola as a base of operations and stir up the Native Americans so we can attack the Americans. And Spain like, we're not fighting with it. But since Britain is helping out Spain, Spain's hands are tied. All they can do is to just try not to stir things up too much. So they're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Like I say, it's a perfect storm. It's not just going on in Pensacola. The War of 1812 is going on. The Creek War is going on inside of that. And really, the First Seminole War is a continuation of the Creek War. It just continues. There were at least seven or eight unofficial American military expeditions into Spanish Florida in that last Spanish period. It mainly because they cannot control their own borders. And the Americans were trying to, we're going to come in and police it ourselves. It wasn't just in Pensacola. It was like the Apalachicola River with Duncan Clanch and Negro Fort. It was Gregor McGregor and Louis Alry and Fernandina with Amelia Island. That place was completely lawless. And there were all these little filibuster expeditions. So wherever you go across Spanish Florida, they're just suffering one body blow to the other. And eventually, by the early 1800s, especially after the first Seminole War, that convinced them we need to get rid of Florida and cut our losses. There is some misunderstanding about how Spain and America consummated this deal. What might Spain have done if they had kept Florida? It had been more valuable back in the past. They had a chance to develop the Keys. That would have been something to protect the Straits of Florida. Speaking of the Keys, Spain may not have developed the Keys because it was a lawless area, and that takes resources, as the incoming American authorities learned. In the 1820s, one of the things that the United States had to do was create the West Indies Patrol uh, squadron to go down and fight all these pirates 
that are hanging out in the Keys between the Keys and Cuba. And so that's why you got pirate activity. So you know, the Spanish could even keep control of the pirates in the Straits of Florida. That was one thing that they had to do very early on. You do have Pensacola, which was a deep water port. That's why the, the Navy Yard is established there in 1826, only five years later. And the military is still a very important part of West Florida. What other settlements or trading cities sprouted up in Florida besides the well-established legacy cities the Spanish bequeathed us? There was nothing in the peninsula, nothing. All you got really is Pensacola and St. Augustine. And you got Key West developing. You got Tampa to a degree. But really, much of anything south of uh, I-10 was not developed until after the Civil War, especially after World War One. That's what it really takes off. Andrew Jackson is the new territorial governor. Was he exercising that role in his position as a general? Or had he resigned his commission and served as a civilian? That is still being debated. I imagine he was because even though he was not technically a military governor, he is giving orders to the military in their obeying them. So that tells to me, okay, he's in charge. If he's giving orders to the U.S. troops in the area and stuff like that, uh, it's not just a provisional governor because governors can't really do that. So Jackson, though, was no ordinary territorial or provisional governor. I imagine he could ignore the rules if he wanted to at that point. But, of course, it could be just Jackson. Nobody wanted to say, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you don't want to cause Jackson. Yeah, he had his uniform there, and there was part of the infantry. They banded the Star Spangled Banner. There was infantry salute. You had the U.S. Navy there. Who spoke that day? Who was on the dais? We have no idea. The, you know, it's very terse. You want a better description. But so they did this, and that was it. So we have no idea, actually, if any group were invited, were there speaking roles or anything like that. It's Eli's guess. But I'm sure a lot of people showed up just out of curiosity. Now, wait a minute. They did have newspapers in Pensacola, did they not? No, because we got the newspaper from 1821, but here's the thing. Part of the thing was not shipped in time. They didn't start publishing it until the next month. The first Pensacola Floridian, the first Pensacola newspaper goes into print, and they'll just press, print all the ordinances and all the stuff that they don't. Back then, they just didn't list me personal descriptions like we would like to have today. So we have no idea how many people showed up, what they were there. All right, no Pensacola paper, but what about a national paper, the Niles Weekly Register, for instance? Yeah, I have that index of Niles Weekly Register. It's a, it's a wonderful thing because that list, that's a wonderful paper. <laughs> There's always reports, but how many reports have fallen through the cracks? Chris Kimball was on to talk about how he does research for the stories he tells about settlers and soldiers and Seminole back during that long war period. He mentioned how the technology has definitely changed and often changed for the better for a researcher obtaining information. How has that been for you? A few years ago, I was working on some old Civil War reminiscences from the 1880s, 1890s, old papers. A lot of the stuff was, I had 85% of the book done, but a lot of the stuff I'm talking about, well, who is this guy? I looked through the books and resources and stuff. I just put it off. Well, I just said, I, you know, I need to finish it up. And so 10 years later, I came back to it. I said, oh, those missing guys. 
So I just Googled the stuff, and like 90% of the stuff that I could not find 10 years before is online, mostly in genealogy web pages. That answered all my questions. Just in, just in 10 years, so much stuff is available online through archives that we did not have access to. There's a lot of great information out there. Just trying to find the time to do it all. <laughs> One American account did get out. I know that Jackson's wife, Rachel, is not too happy with Pensacola. She said, sand to the streets. It's just a sand bed, and it's, it's hot. And she also thought that it was horrible that the stores are open on Sunday and that there were billiards and bowling going on, and people were gambling, and there were ladies that looked like they were ladies of ill repute. Can't imagine Margo, the archaeologist, she was kidding around. I don't think she was kidding around. She found this one woman that had a parasol shop, and she sold a lot of parasols. I said, are you sure it was parasols she was selling? She said, well, that's what they said, but <laughs> I don't know. Um, it makes you want. You have space for more discoveries? We are always finding new old stuff. So I have a feeling that even though we could find that much information, somebody find in their attic a letter from a soldier was here who talks all about the stuff that will show up six months from now. That's how things work. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? <laughs> so, hey, maybe just the publicity of somebody said, hey, I'm always finding new stuff that people go to a state sale or people are cleaning out an attic and you find these things that, that give us these answers. So it's amazing. Just think when you know, know it all, you'll come up with some new old stuff, and uh, that's always exciting. Brian, you jest about the qualifications for Jackson to be appointed the governor of territorial or provincial Florida? I always tell my students that for taking over in Pensacola, the provincial governor was uh, selected to be Jackson. And they say, why Jackson? I said, because he had frequent invader mileage. <laughs> I said, you ever been to Pensacola again? I said, yeah, like twice. I know it pretty well. Uh, <laughs> it is a Yes, but once the transfer was affected, everything calmed down, and Jackson didn't cause any more trouble, right? With the outgoing Governor Jose Cayiva, a couple of days after the transfer of the flag, Jackson causes another international incident. Jackson's trying to help this lady get some land claims, but the records were held by the Spanish authorities who were going to take them back to Havana. And so he asked the outgoing governor, give this lady you know, her proof for that she owns this land. And Kayyavi was arrogant. He was a lot like Jackson. So they're very stubborn. They hate each other, which is not a good recipe. So Jackson said, give me this. So, no, I'm, I'm going to bed early. I don't feel good. Jackson sends soldiers down there and drags him out of his bed with his soldiers in his jammies, more or less, and throws the governor into the jail there in Pensacola. And the governor complained to the Spanish ambassador, it's, a, it's another international incident. It was like, oh my gosh, a bull in a china shop would be better than Jackson. Never a dull moment. <laughs> yeah, Jackson's a weird person. He adopted several Native American children. And yet he's always considered the enemy of Native Americans. I guess he was bipolar. I, I don't know the psychology of Jack. How did the Indian tribes in Florida handle this transfer of authority? After the mid-1800s, they slipped into the background and either taken on black culture or white culture, depending on the color of their skin, to hide their Indian identity. Up in the 1950s, there were local Native Americans here in the Panhandle that on their deathbed told their grandkids were actually Creeks. Like, really? 
We had no idea because they were afraid that with the Indian Removal Act of the 1830s, that they might still be sent to Oklahoma and Arkansas. And so that was a real fear. It was a real fear up until the 1950s and 60s. So significant number of great-grandmother was a Creek Indian back in the 1830s here locally. So there's a lot of a heritage with Anglo-Hispanic, American, Cracker, Creek, whatever you want to call it, in Heinz 57. So it means that today people are more respectful of the people that have come in the past. An open-ended question for the Americans was what to do about the Seminole, who are already in Florida. Well, they were placed on an enormous reservation, but they had no contact with the Gulf or the Atlantic because they're afraid if they had contact on the coast that the Spanish and Cuba and people like that might try to ship a gun. So there was fearful of even having any coastal contact. So that's why that reservation there in central Florida, there's no contact with the coast. There was that fear that they could still get outside support and be a problem. So keep in mind, 1823, Everything south of Lake City was terra incognita, basically. People had no idea. Except to the Seminole. They were there. I always think it was ironic that uh, Wiley Thompson, you presented Osceola a rifle. You know, <laughs> like, you, you know, after you being such a, you know what? Wiley Thompson got exactly what he deserved. But, oh, my goodness. Now we're slipping into the Second Seminole War. But if you don't mess with anyone, the chances are no one will mess with you. So trying to keep that police action going in, that's important. What to do about the Seminole, like the question what to do about Maria and the Sound of Music, proved to be an issue much tougher to solve than at first glance. That was a big concern from day one, really. In 1823, very clearly, once the American government began to place the territorial government, what do we do about all these Seminoles here? There were some people just said, live and let live. They were scattered bunches along the Apalachicola Indians, for instance, stuff like that, uh, some around here in the Panhandle, but just small bands that weren't bothering one. It was the ones that were in the central area where all the sugar plantations were starting to pop up. That's what they were concerned with. Plus, you've got all the runaway slaves hand down to the Seminoles, so that adds another component to this nasty brew of nitroglycerin, the whole slavery issue crumping up. There is some validity to saying that the Second Seminole War especially was really a, a race war because it was involved with trying to keep the slaves from getting down to the Seminoles. For people of African descent in general, did life get better? Did life get worse once the United States took possession of Florida? It actually got better for many people. Pensacola had the smallest number of slaves. They had a very large free black population. I believe one of the largest free black populations through the entire antebellum era. And that goes back to the Spanish period where you'd had many free blacks, free Creoles that were here. But they had a limbo existence. And as the 1800s progressed, a lot of Southern slave states began passing more laws against free blacks, trying to run them out because free blacks were positive role models. They showed that here's a family that can survive without the institution of slavery. Slave owners could not stand the fact that free blacks existed. They're trying to run them out to the northern states. There was a law passed in the 1850s in Florida that said if you were a free black, 
that you have to have a white guardian in order to sign papers, like you're perpetually under the age of 18. The Pensacola Gazette, run by whites, actually put an editorial that said, this is not fair to our Pensacola free blacks. Now, that surprised to see any paper. Many of the Spanish Creoles that were free blacks, they rented out a couple of ships and sailed out of Pensacola and went down to Veracruz. Some were returned after the Civil War, but all just said, we're not going to put up with this type of behavior. For unfree blacks, Pensacola harbored an entirely different appeal. It's a port city, and the chances of finding a job on a ship of another country that can take you out of North America to another port where you can be perfectly free, that was always the draw. Everybody thinks about the Underground Railroad. Everybody's heading north, but some of the people are heading south, aiming for Pensacola. This, in effect, is a counterpart to what was going on at St. Augustine in East Florida. Fort Mose near St. Augustine. Fort Mose is the best example. Here's a group of runaway slaves from the English colonies of Georgia and the Carolinas who came down to Spanish Florida and were allowed to do their own thing. That just drove people up there like, I can't believe the Spanish are doing that. All this borderland struggle, countries fighting for the southeast. There were still Spanish slaves, but it had gone down tremendously since 50 years since the last Spanish period before the British period. The dynamics had changed quite a bit. The legal system had changed. You can see it really good in St. Augustine. It's very different as well. So, But what's going on in St. Augustine is also going on in Pensacola as well. How did the Spanish slavery different from the British slavery? We definitely see some evolution, some lightening of the burdens. What happens in 1821 is the middle section of Florida, Tallahassee area, gets settled in the 1820s, and it became very much like typical Old South plantations because you can grow cotton, tobacco, sugar cane, stuff like that. So it became more traditional crop agriculture. St. Augustine didn't have much of that. Pensacola didn't have much of that. The majority of all the slaves in early Florida were situated in the Big Bend area, the Tallahassee area, Leon, Gadsden, Madison County, those areas. What kind of continuity of their civil liberties for people who were in Florida once the transfer happened? What your status was in 1821 before July 17th would remain your status. And I have a feeling that the people that were in the government and doing this planning probably took as a guide sheet how we did New Orleans in 1803. Because New Orleans in Louisiana had the exact same things you're talking about. You've got free blacks, you've got enslaved blacks, you've got the Hispanic population, you've got French population, and Americans as well. And we took over in 1803 New Orleans and Louisiana we faced a very similar thing. So I mentioned they were using what they, how they set the government in Louisiana as a template for doing the same thing in Florida because there were so many similarities. Plus, you've got the 1810 West Florida Revolt there, the Florida parishes north of Lake Pontchartrain. The Americans sort of came in and annexed that part, and then they took over coastal Mississippi, coastal Alabama before the War of 1812. They said, no, no, that's really part of us, but could do nothing but just protest. you got the same dynamics in Pascagoula, in Baton Rouge, in Mobile that you have here. We're talking about demographics. So there already was a foundation 
recognition for, oh, we know how to do this. We've done this in other areas. So it's not like they're having to learn completely new. While this happened, you've got to look at more than just Florida and Spain. Look what's happening to Spain. They're losing their empire. It's crumbling around them. They've lost control of their own country. You've got to think globally. You've got to think hemispherically. You've got to think locally. Everything's tied together. When people realize this, I often tell my students that in Uriah Bloom's expedition, while Jackson marches over to New Orleans, he sent a thousand volunteers to scour between Pensacola and the Chattahoochee River in December of 1814. And one of the people in there was David Crockett. You know, Davy Crockett was here. And people were like, oh my gosh, all these people are here. So yeah, and this was going on. This was a big thing. You've got all these countries fighting and fighting, and the Native Americans were pawns. Sometimes the Native Americans were playing the, the Europeans off of each other. Oh, they're always switching sides. It's crazy. It's like the Thirty Years' War. And who are we fighting this year? What have you written about the history of the Seminole War conflicts? I've done a lot of articles on various aspects of the Seminole Wars here, the Panhandle, uh, like the Second uh, Creek War in 1837, things of that nature. You've written a number of books. Who's your publisher? I've got my own printing company, Patagonia Press. I did years ago for little monographs related to West Florida history. P.O. Box 284, Baghdad, Florida, 32530. I think I've got a Facebook page about Patagonia Press, too. I think it's still there. <laughs> Yeah, I've done that in 1990. I've done about 20 titles over the last couple of decades. Despite the number of titles that you've done over the last several decades, your most recent one surprised just about everyone. What is this Disney Hotel book all about? I've surprised everyone by that. I sort of kept it secret because I've been focused on this thing. Yeah, I'm a Disney fan. I said, write what you love, write what you know. And so nobody ever done a history of the different individual resorts. And my wife and I, every time we would go, she's a Disney fan too, we'd stay at a different place. I said, maybe we should just write a book about this. She said, we need to do some more research trips, fun with it. I'm going to do a couple of book signings here locally. I've got a really cool PowerPoint that will bring out some of the, the interesting Disney details and little personal stories. I want to stretch my wings a little bit and do something out of my comfort zone, so to speak. <laughs> We'll have to leave it there. Dr. Brian Rucker, thanks for joining us for The Seminole Wars. Anytime, Patrick. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Rudy Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.